Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regard to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. So our first speaker is Jared Meyer. He is a Partner and Government Affairs Director at the August Strategy Group. He has a BS in Finance and a minor in the Philosophy of Law from St. John's University in New York City. Mr. Meyer is an experienced multi-state lobbyist, actually he was just out in Arizona last night, um, lobbying there, and policy advisor who has worked at the U.S. Department of Labor and the White House as part of their Council of Economic Advisors with particular expertise in the areas of education, employment, and regulatory policy. His writings have appeared in such outlets as the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and City Journal, and his media appearances include programs on networks such as BBC, Fox News, and NPR. He's the author of multiple books, including Uber Positive, Why Americans Love the Sharing Economy. So please join me in welcoming Jared Meyer to Kennesaw State. Well, thanks everyone for showing up. Uh, I don't know if I would have had this motivation when I was in college to come to listen to some economics talks, but we're going to try to make this as interesting as possible. And you may be wondering why you're hearing from me, who does not have a PhD in economics or even an undergraduate degree in economics. Well, the reason is I get a lot of real world experience because I work as a lobbyist. So I see the effects when you apply the economic way of thinking to the political sphere, what interesting conclusions you can draw, and really why I got into this line of work was I saw a bunch of stupid laws and I wondered why did we have these. I found an economic theory, public choice, that really helped explain this. And I want to use one example of Uber in New York City to help show you why public choice helps explain why we have so many terrible laws. So I've been talking about Uber, Lyft, Airbnb for years. I remember back in 2013, I actually had to explain to people what Uber was before doing a talk. I obviously don't have to do that anymore. But the simplest way, I think, to understand ride sharing in other aspects of, if you want to call it the sharing economy, gig work, is that there have always been people who want something and people who are willing to provide something. But in economics, the transaction costs were too high. If I wanted to stay at someone's house when I got in you know, late last night, I could have walked around and knocked on every door, asked them if they had an extra room, tried to negotiate a price with them. Like, I could have done that, but the transaction costs are so high that it'd be much easier to just pay more and go to a hotel where I knew that like, a kind of middleman in the company would be able to set me up with a room so I could get some sleep. Now, all Airbnb did was lower those transaction costs and it made a lot more exchanges possible. So it's my super simple overview of what enabled ride sharing. There's really not that much cool tech. It's pretty simple. We had smartphones for a while. We had GPS for a while. It's not that hard. It was just connecting people and lowering transaction costs. So public choice. The simplest way to explain it is this quote from James Buchanan who won the Nobel Prize in economics. 
Public choice is simply politics without romance. It takes the absolutely crazy theory that politicians are people too. Just because you get elected or you start working for the government doesn't mean you stop being a human being and you start being some sort of mythical angel who only cares about the public good. People can care about the public good, but they're still humans. So we'll go through this after I uh, talk a little bit about Uber in New York City, but I really view it as three different dichotomies. You know, do we view people who work in government as selfless servants or real people? Public choice says real people. It shines some light on government failure and market failure. You know, just because something's not working well in the market doesn't mean the government automatically does it better. And also it helps us understand political entrepreneurs and market entrepreneurs and the important distinctions between those categories. But to start off, I want to tell a story about Gene Friedman. So this uh, very cool looking guy was very wealthy because he owned well over 1,000 New York City taxi medallions. And to explain what these taxi medallions are, they're about 85 year old system where in order to pick up someone south of the top part of Central Park in Manhattan, you had to buy one of these medallions. That's when you see the yellow cabs in New York, every single one of them has a medallion. Well, in the few years before Uber took off, there was a lot of rampant speculation, I guess you could call it, in the taxi medallion market. The price over doubled in just a few years before, and Gene Friedman set the record when one sold for $1.3 million. One of those little things on the taxi cab was selling for $1.3 million. What's interesting is because he owned 1,000, he was able to use some highly leveraged financing, and the higher that it sold for, it increased his net worth on paper because he owned so many of them. So it was kind of a shady gig, but this guy was a, not a fan of Uber once they started working in New York City. So this is not a pretty slide at all, but I just wanted to throw some numbers that I, and points that I'll be mentioning when talking about Uber in New York City up in case you wanted to write them down. I think the most interesting part is that New York City taxi medallions, when the big fights started kicking off in New York City in 2015, they were capped at 13,427. That might sound like a lot unless you've ever tried to hail a taxi in the rain or when, uh, you know, during rush hour at bar close. But when in the 1930s, there were actually more medallions than there are today. That makes no sense. The population has shrunk. Why would we have fewer? I think public choice can help answer that. Uh, but as I said, one sold for 1.3 million. But once Uber entered the market, they started declining in prices rapidly. And the reason Uber was able to enter is because it was a prearranged ride. You know, you weren't just out on the street holding up your hand. They fell under other for hire vehicle regulations that weren't capped by the medallion system. So Uber started operating, some people call it a legal gray area. I don't think it was a legal gray area at all. You prearrange a ride and then someone who is licensed with the city of New York comes and picks you up. But this led to a lot of pushback, especially from Mayor Bill de Blasio. And I just think, you know, this might not have anything to do with it, but he got over half a million dollars from the taxi industry. And as someone who ran as a mayor for all New York, he said we focus way too much on Manhattan and the central business districts. He wanted to be a mayor for all New York. I found it a little odd that he hated Uber so much. So I reached out to Uber back in yeah, 2014 or 2015, 
And I, I mean, this was when Uber was small enough, I could just call up their global head of public affairs and they'd actually pick up my phone, phone call. Uh, but I said, you know, I don't think this is true. I lived in New York for a while and all my friends who are still out in Queens say that they use Uber all the time. I bet if we looked at every single ride, you'd see most of the growth in outer borough, low income neighborhoods. So surprisingly, Uber agreed to share all their data with me. So this was the first time they ended up doing that. And that's exactly what I found, is that almost all the growth was in outer borough neighborhoods, low income, and in uh, neighborhoods uh, that were disproportionately uh, non-white. So I thought that was very interesting that Mayor Bill de Blasio, a proudly progressive mayor, was trying to shut this down and take away transportation options. Like I, I mean, it took forever for me to get back out to Queens after going out on the weekend in New York City. So anyways, there were a lot of discussions. The most famous one was a 1% cap on the number of new Uber drivers. Uh, this thankfully was delayed. And while the city could do a study on traffic, uh, which came back and found that there was no effect on traffic at all. So eventually it was scrapped. And today, you know, there are still constant battles in New York over Uber. But this particular story, I think, highlights a lot. Uh, the city council also wanted to cap surge pricing at two times. But one of the issues with taxis, as someone who lived there, was whenever you wanted one, you couldn't get one because everyone else wanted one as well. So, you know, I'm, maybe I'm crazy, but I always view it as being able to get a ride is better than not being able to get one at all. So I thought that was another way to try to make Uber more like taxis rather than trying to change these outdated rules from the 1930s to make taxis more like Ubers. Uh, and I did hint at some of these benefits, but I wanted to highlight some other ones. Uh, one thing that gets left out a lot is driver safety. People talk about passenger safety all the time. But this is the craziest stat. If you're a taxi driver, you're twice as likely to get murdered while working as if you're a police officer. It's because they carry a lot of cash. It's a completely anonymous trip. Like when you start thinking about it, it makes sense, but that blew my mind when I first found it. So you heard all these arguments about, well, Uber drivers aren't gonna be safe. You don't hear that many stories. They, Uber drivers definitely don't have twice the homicide rate as police officers. Uh, there was a documented decrease uh, in a study that Uber did with Mothers Against Drunk Driving and then multiple other examples in cities such as Seattle, which makes sense. When you have more options, you tend to make better choices. And uh, driver earnings. This is something that still gets talked about all the time, especially in the context of if Uber drivers should be employees or independent contractors. What gets left out is through all of Uber's history, the drivers have made more per hour than taxi drivers. Because an important thing to point out about our friend Gene Friedman, so the industry that was, or the taxi industry will try to make it look like every single driver owns their own car, they're small businesses, they're entrepreneurs. In fact, no, it's people like this guy. They're taxi kingpins who drivers have to come and pay an upfront cost to rent the taxi from them. So before they're even making any money in a day, they have to get up to, let's say, $80 that they're going to have to pay back to Mr. Friedman. What was interesting as well is after uh, the medallion prices started falling, Gene Friedman got into a lot of financial trouble because of his uh, leverage financing scheme. And he was so mad, he went to the city and tried to increase the daily rate that he could charge taxi drivers so that he could make more money. Yet at the same time, he's out there saying that Uber drivers are being taken advantage of. So, you know, it, there are no lengths that people won't go to to protect their own financial interests. And unfortunately, politicians often listen.
So getting into this part, which I think is very important, and this is going to be a broad overview. Every individual is different. Everyone has their own motivations. But generally, I would say politicians' incentives are to get reelected, increase their power, and offer constituents benefits now and push their costs in the future. That's generally what I see. They also, you know, if there's things they believe in, they want to work on that, and that can outweigh some of their incentives to get reelected or get more power. And bureaucrats are also very important to look at because almost every rule or law that you hear about is not actually passed by something like Congress. It is passed, Congress or a state legislature delegates its authority to people who you've never heard of. As someone who was a bureaucrat, uh, I can talk about them very uh, authoritatively in that they want to expand their authority while at the same time not wanting to do any work and they want to protect their jobs or budgets. Again, it's just simple self-interest. This isn't saying that bad people are bureaucrats or politicians. If a bunch of us went into it, the same incentives would affect us. So as I said at the beginning, public choice makes the radical assertion that once you go into politics, you're still a human being and you're not automatically caring about just maximizing the public good. Uh, it's just basic economics, like I said, if you want to get more into all the terms that I no longer understand because I haven't taken a course on this in forever, I recommend reading uh, James Buchanan's work. And then government failure versus market failure. I think this is something else that gets overlooked. Whenever, and I'm not using market failure in the economics term for uh, economics majors here, just when I'm using it as like something that people don't like. So when something's going wrong in government, I can very much so attest that that leads to bigger budgets and more authority. But when something's going wrong in the market, it almost always leads for calls for the government to get involved. And as I said, just because something isn't going the way that you want it or someone wants it doesn't mean the government will make it better. So let's use some of the common critiques that were levied against Uber in the fight in New York City. One is there's traffic from ride sharing. Well, there's just traffic in New York in general because of tragedy of the commons. You know, everyone's already paying for these roads through taxes. You don't have to pay for it to use it. Everyone tries to drive it once. Well, rather than capping ride sharing at 1% or outright banning it, like I'm sure Mayor de Blasio would have wanted to do, you could institute uh, congestion pricing, which is something New York's been trying to do. Like there are other fixes and the government all of a sudden saying Uber can only grow by 1% isn't going to magically fix traffic in Manhattan. Uh, the second is rideshare workers' wages and benefits. Even though there have been a good amount of studies showing that people are generally happy with their arrangements when they partner with a ride-sharing company, there are still some people who I'm sure like all of us would like to make some more money and people who want them to do the same. Uh, rather than just saying that these people all have to become employees, I think there are plenty of other options uh, to continue their independent contractor status. And just to let you know, uh, when you get a job, you're either an employee or a contractor. If you're an employee, you give up a lot of autonomy over your work to your employer, and in exchange for that, because of a 1930s uh, labor law, you are uh, entitled to things like overtime, uh, minimum wage, all the things that you get when you're an employee. If you're a contractor, you know, anti-discrimination law still applies to you, but things like overtime do not, neither does minimum wage. And think about it with ride sharing. Most people use this as a very part-time work. So what would make sense on overtime pay? Like if you could automatically get it by just working on your own, like it, the company's not telling you to do it, you're deciding to do it. 
Same with minimum wage. You could turn it on while everyone's sleeping and no one wants a ride at, let's say, 4 a.m. on a Wednesday. And do you have to get paid minimum wage then? So if you lose that independent contractor status, you then end up having to do scheduling. Like it again, it moves more and more towards uh, away from the flexible work that people like. And one thing that's important, the taxi industry kept arguing that rideshare workers are being taken advantage of because they were independent contractors. Taxi drivers are independent contractors too. So this just shows you that when you hear arguments in the public, uh, people do not have to tell the truth. And in, for their own self-interest and protecting their bottom line, they will use a lot of interesting lines. Uh, the last one is taxi medallions were losing value. I mean, Gene Friedman even asked the city for a good old-fashioned bailout. Uh, just because they're losing value, it's actually something that Gordon Tullock talked about, another pioneering economist in public choice, uh, the transitional gains trap. So let's use an example that maybe a few of you are familiar with. We all know houses are expensive. Uh, you know, if you, after you finish school, I'm sure you may, once you find a community, want to buy a house. Houses cost a lot of money in the U.S. because we subsidize them to try to make them cheaper. But as you have this built-in subsidy, or uh, in the case of taxi medallions, a built-in scarce supply, the economic value from that scarcity or that benefit gets priced into the object. So when I bought my house a few years ago, I, didn't, I had to pay for the benefit that was already existing. So I, by continuing it, I pretty much just stayed the same, but if you take it away, I lose money. So it was like the first people who had something before a policy was put in place, they do really well, then it's priced in, and if it's taken away, the most recent holder loses. That's just a fact of economics, but it helps to explain in public choice why it's so hard to take away a benefit from someone. Um, the last is, Political entrepreneurs versus market entrepreneurs. Another line that's commonly attributed to Gordon Tullock is rent seeking. This is a really interesting concept that you could do an entire hour long lecture on, but pretty much it's when you get wealth by not producing anything. You use the political process rather than the market process to enrich yourself. And the reason that this is a problem is the market's generally positive sum. When two people agree on a trade, they're both better off. In politics, it's zero sum. Someone wins, someone loses. We don't magically just get to have 900 people in the House of Representatives because all them are helping each other. Like we have 435. Uh, and what's very interesting, you could see this with the case of Uber. It's going to come off as like I'm, you know, very much an Uber shill. And that's because when they were a new company, they were taking on the industries and the political entrepreneurs that were already established. It didn't take very long before Uber quickly became a political entrepreneur. I mean, I saw some regs they were shopping around in D.C. saying that the cars that any uh, for-hire vehicle driver you had to use would have to have like four doors. They'd have to offer the insurance amount at a minimum that just happened to be magically exactly what Uber's was. So it's kind of locking in their business model. This isn't something that's good or bad. This just happens pervasively throughout the entire economy. So it's not a case of good firms and evil firms. It's new firms and existing firms. Uh, the other point that I think is interesting, and we've hinted at this quite a bit, is bootleggers and Baptists. So the idea is if Gene Friedman, I think he actually made a mistake by being really public with this because he's not a sympathetic character at all. He ripped off immigrant taxi drivers. He got rich by uh, debt finance speculation. He was just kind of a dick. I, mean, I don't know. He wasn't a good guy. So having, he's kind of like the bootlegger here. 
Think about it in states that have blue laws where you can't sell alcohol on Sundays. You have the Baptists go out and advocate for them because they care about this for moral reasons. They're the right kind of people you want out in public. But yet, whether they work together or not, they have the same aims as the bootleggers who now know on one day a week they can make money because they're the only ones who's going to sell alcohol. So you see this all the time, and I use this all the time when lobbying. I don't want a company out there saying that they want special treatment. You can find some nonprofit that has an agreed end to it uh, and have them be the public face of it. So this is a trick that everyone uses. And when you hear uh, a sympathetic group that maybe you agree with their moral stand, just step back and wonder, okay, who else is winning from this? Who's funding this big PR campaign? Uh, and there are a million examples. Uh, here are a few of my favorites. I didn't know uh, quite how long that would take after taking a red eye and not sleeping last night, uh, but we have, I think, two minutes, so I'm going to give a whirlwind tour of my favorite examples of public choice in action. Uh, the first is film tax credits. So whether you know it or not, taxpayers pay well over $1.5 billion a year just straight to Hollywood through refundable film tax credits. What this means is if you, and Georgia's probably the worst offender, if you film a movie in Georgia and you uh, qualify for a tax credit, even if you don't owe taxes, you just get a check from the state. So rather than funding roads or police or teach, higher teacher pay, Georgia is spending money to just give it to Hollywood. And what's fun about this is the Motion Picture Association of America claims that you know, Georgia makes $2 for every dollar it spends. Well, Maryland ended up looking into this because it seemed like a pretty crazy claim. Maryland's returned six cents for every dollar. And they said it helps small-time producers. 98% of their budget in 2015 went to Veep and House of Cards, which I also think is funny. And then they claim there's tourism benefits. Again, like kind of the uh, Baptists in this would be the people who care about Maryland tourism and want more visitors. Yeah, uh, no one thinks of Maryland when you think of Veep or House of Cards. You think of D.C. Uh, interior design licensing, this is a dumb thing that a few states require you to spend six years getting training just to be an interior designer. Uh, why I think that is ridiculous is one of them is DC and President Obama, when he was designing the White House, used an unlicensed California interior designer to design the White House. So if it's safe enough for the most protected man in the world to use an unlicensed interior designer, I feel like the rest of us should too. But the organization that represents interior designers goes state to state trying to get other ones to copy DC and have six years required training and thousands of dollars. I mean, a bachelor's degree you need to get and then two years of being an intern. EMTs only take about a month to two months of training. They literally hold lives in their hands. So I'm gonna say that it's probably not correct that you need to train more to be an interior designer safely rather than be an EMT. And again, this is saying nothing about this. I could never be an interior designer. I don't have the skills. But when you're looking at regulation, like with Uber, it is about protecting the public. That should be the argument. And that's the one you'll hear the Baptists making. But often, it's about protecting profits. Uh, sugar, turns out we all pay double what the rest of the world pays in sugar. Uh, and that is because we, the US government guarantees a minimum floor for prices of sugar. And then they'll buy it up and dump it out just to make us pay more. So, not, and we also, they ban imports of sugar from other countries. 
surprisingly, like this is something Bernie Sanders and Marco Rubio both agree on because they're both massively funded by the sugar industry in their, uh, uh, in their states. And one thing, I think this explains public choice though. Like why do we have all this stupid stuff? It's because it barely costs us anything. I did the math and the average American pays about $30 a year more because of our sugar policy. That's not even enough for you guys to even listen to my lecture for like $30 a year. Yet there are certain sugar producers that make billions of dollars off of this. So it makes economic sense for them to spend their entire lives fighting to maintain that policy. And I think we're out of time, but happy to dive into 500 other examples of these. The last is the Jones Act. If you ever want to get mad, this is like my personal thing that I just really care about. It's so dumb. Uh, but thanks for listening, and I uh, hope this made you a little more interested in public choice. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.